You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. So th- thank you for talking uh, today with me, Pete, on your new book on um, pu- public governance and classical liberalism and public governance. Uh, as someone who's working in the applied space, I thought we might be able to have a conversation about the, um, how to engage this polycentric approach to policy work um, by working through, first, what is the um, what, what are the main themes, what is the new mental model that's offered by this polycentric approach? Uh, and how does it differ from how you might consider a typical policy analyst going about their business currently in analyzing the government space? Yes. Uh, uh, well, what's, first, what's new? first, thank you for uh, doing this with me. Uh, it's a great uh, privilege, and and uh, I've uh, loved watching uh, your work through the years in, in uh various things having to do with fiscal reforms and pension reforms and everything like that. So um, this is exciting. You actually have the on the ground uh, knowledge and I'm, you know, 30,000 feet in the air kind of thing. So hopefully maybe we can, you know, uh, merge those. Um, I think, you know, polycentricism isn't synonymous with decentralization, um, um, though it's kind of like that. <laughs> and polycentricism is not, uh, you know, uh, sort of synonymous with spontaneous order, though it's kind of like that. And so it's a difficult uh, kind of idea. The basic idea is that there's many centers of authority, of decision authority, and they compete with one another. And so I think if there's a tagline from all this, it's contestation. That, uh, again, we don't want to deny that some people have devoted their lives and, and energies to becoming uh, experts on a subject and uh, a policy person, uh, you know, yourself, you are an expert. Um, but part of the polycentric idea is that within a self-governing democratic society, we don't allow for any monopoly experts. So our structures have to have constant nodes of contestation in which experts are checked by counter views and the will of the people, and so that we, in some sense, are always forcing our political institutions to be uh, institutions that reflect our governing with one another rather than trying to govern over one another. And um, so if you think about, like, uh, again, like, so not only a tagline of contestation, but the way that we and the Ostroms sort of try to sum it up is this idea of shifting the, no, the mental model from seeing like a state to seeing like a citizen. Um, and this puts a priority on bottom-up uh, citizens' relationships. This is why in the technical terminology, a notion of co-production is so important um, in the production of local public goods um, because the people that are being... Uh, that live in those environments are major sources for uh, the uh, outputs that are desired. Public safety, uh, improvement in schools, all these kind of things like that involve um, not only the bureaucracy acting 
efficiently, but that the recipients of the services contribute and sustain them and, and reconstitute them when uh, they need to be changed. And so nodes of contestation throughout the system and trying to see like a citizen rather than see like a state. Recently, you have a, a paper out with uh, Leah Palagashvili and uh, Ennio Piano, which I, I, I really enjoyed reading, uh, with this concept of fiscal attention. Got me thinking, are, those are some of the um, obstacles. You raise an obstacle to why we don't see perhaps more authentically polycentric solutions to some of our policy dilemmas uh, in, in policing. And I, I think that you could extend it to education, to health care, uh, to environmental issues. Fiscal attention from the federal level, is that an obstacle to a truly authentic self-governing approach? Yeah, I mean, this is a, uh, so, you know, a lot of wisdom is always in little phrases that people have, right? So in some sense, the theory of fiscal attention, if you ask me to summarize it, it was uh, he who pays, uh, who he who pays the piper gets to dictate the tune, right? And so if you look at like where the resources flow from and, uh, you know, this is explains the militarization of police, not the local communities uh, desiring to have, you know, the police uh, have, you know, zooped up surplus military idea. It's the federal government in order for them to fight various quote unquote wars, war on drugs, you know, the war against terrorism, all these kind of things like that. And then again, you know, we're not saying that, um, you know, wars in general, in our book, we're not really making a, uh, a libertarian case for the way government should be structured. We're making a classical liberal case which is the basic idea of a of a market economy embedded within a limited government that has constitutional protections and how do you try to do that so you know it, 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 in the quest and searching for that we may find that this is really really a difficult beast to do which may lead us to have less faith that we're able to do these kind of rightly constituted political structures um, that, of course, is always up subject to debate. You know, it's an empirical debate. But one of the things that we do know is that if you claim that you're going to get decentralization or more polycentricism, but yet you have a single authority that's providing the resources, don't be surprised when the entity responds, the, whatever entity it is, schooling or whatever, responds to what the output measures are that the central authority wants in order to get the funding. Um, and so that's what we mean by the fiscal attention. And in fact, when I used to go around and present the paper, I had a, a slide when I first introduced it and I didn't have any words on the slide. It was just a giant magnet and the magnet was attracting dollars to it. And basically what I argued is going back to seeing like a citizen versus seeing like a state, that if you truly had a polycentric uh, system set up, the magnet would be geared towards the citizens. And that's where the resources would flow from. That's kind of what's in the TIBU model, the idea of being able to vote with your feet because you're, as a citizen, you're demanding how the array of public services that are offered in your different community. Well, you're like a consumer at the store. If you buy or abstain from buying, that's gonna impact what's offered in the store, right? Well, what happens is if that magnet turns upside down and it's pointing at the federal government, you know, the people down here could be screaming all they want, but they have no magnetic effect of what's happening. And that's where you get this real frustration from in terms of the delivery of public goods and services. 
And, you know, there's a lot of, um, I guess there's, you know, uh, a lot of issues embedded in the whole question of, you know, uh, public goods and public services. So that's why I titled the book is called Public Governance, because it begins with this idea that there's this array of services and, and goods that are not going to be provided for in the market. Now, go, right? Now, how, how is it that they're going to be provided effectively and at the right levels and all those things? So there's issues of that we're trying to bring up in there about demand revelation and, and for public goods and the supply and demand of public goods. And so in that sense, it's the, the book project is really a, a, a true effort at a merger between the ideas of Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom and Jim Buchanan and Gordon Tulloch and, and, you know, Friedrich Hayek and uh, trying to lay those out for the world that we face today in America. It's very American-centric. Uh, all of our examples are American examples, not European, but, you know, someone could pick up and run with it in the other countries as well. Uh, we've seen since the, the 60s and even before the federalization of community. Uh, I think that's what fiscal attention is about. Uh, but now, do we have an opportunity with, um, you mentioned in the book that mass media in, in the 60s uh, and before had given us kind of a national consensus outlook. Uh, we had a few television stations. People had faith in experts that they could solve these complex problems from the Vietnam War to um, inflation and, and whatever whatever else, um, but then that starts to break apart in the 1970s, as, as you mentioned, as people see these catastrophes unfold. Uh, today, with with uh, social media and the internet, the public is much more aware of the, the potential for the government to fail at what it says it's going to do. There's a loss of faith in authority. Um, is this a moment for people to sort of open up their minds and eyes to the possibility of authentic self-governance? and? Um, and also, how does technology affect that? You mentioned in the book that technology has the potential to change goods from public to private, from private to public. Um, it also has the potential to make people a little bit more self-aware mm -hmm. that these these solutions to some of the problems in in public safety, in education, in healthcare, in the environment, uh, and the things they care about in their communities, um, that there are authentically um, polycentric solutions. Meaning, um, parts of this can be solved uh, in a decentralized way. Yeah, um, those are great questions. Um, just to pick up on something you said before you asked your question, I, I do think that uh, the book by uh, Michael Grieva on the Upside Down Constitution is important because um, I think that uh, when we have emergencies, we violate the constitutional restrictions, and that moves us away from uh, federalism, and we get, instead of competitive federalism, we get cartel federalism. And once you have cartel federalism, all the properties of competitive federalism fade away. And so that's part of the, so we have the name federalism, but we don't have the actual reality of federalism. And that's what you were talking about. Um, the other thing I think that's interesting is that we're having this conversation on uh, Tuesday, February 4th, on Monday, February 3rd, they had the Iowa caucuses. And what you see in the Iowa caucuses is the beautiful messiness of democracy in action. And what's fascinating about it is that it's a mess, and I don't want to sort of say that, you know, it's always this way, but democracy itself is always kind of uh, a kind of a beautiful expression of various people's give and takes on these things. And they can't figure stuff out, and yet, you know, we're somehow going to believe that the democratic system could produce a coherent national economic plan, right, or something like that. And I think that 
that we're seeing a lot of this stuff uh, come out live and right in front of our eyes. Um, uh, I'm not a big fan of the current uh, administration um, at all. Um, I'm quite critical of the rhetoric and everything of the administration. Um, yet at the same time, um, I think that the way that the media and everyone has responded to it has also just been sucked into the game. Um, it's kind of like uh, in sports, uh, if you have a guy playing and he's a really bad trash talker, one of the things that you're supposed to do is ignore them, not let them take your own game away from you, and that's kind of what's happened. And I do think it has, uh, you know, the other thing is is that in many ways uh, the current administration is just politics like raw and naked rather than that it's anything, you know, totally break new. I mean, all you have to do is read about Lyndon Johnson um, or even, you know, uh, Jack Kennedy's, uh, you know, behavior, let alone Richard Nixon or anyone else. So this is all, you know, the veneer has been torn away, but it's not like this is all of a sudden brand new behavior by political elites. But I think it's fascinating because because the veneer has been torn aside, uh, we don't have faith in it anymore. Um, I always found that personally, this is not academic thing. I always found it a little strange when, you know, a lot of people, especially young people found so much meaning in establishing politics. It just didn't make sense to me. I'd watch the, you know, the, the, um, uh, you know, the conventions on TV and or a speech by a political actor and people would be, young people my age would be crying or something. And I'd be like, hmm, <laughs> what am I missing? You know, and all of that. Um, but it's never the case that we used to have some faith. We had faith that our political leaders would do right by, you know, the American people, that our universities would educate our young and not straddle them, give them the chance or a bite at the American dream, uh, that our legal institutions would protect uh, the rights of, uh, you know, the, 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 the minorities um, and that our, um, you know, our, our media uh, would be news reporters, not cheerleaders, right? Now, all those things, if you study them close enough, they always were a little, that's a little romantic because there always was dysfunction in all of these institutions, like all human institutions. But we've lost faith in them. And as a result, then we don't have, you know, what's, and, and what fills the void in that is not always pretty. Uh, in fact, could be very dangerous. Now, can the self governing capacities of the internet fill that void? Um, we can hope uh, that it can. Um, that was its original promise, right? That's what we promised a lot. But I think that we have to also consider the fact that a lot of social media is cheap talk rather than deep talk. Um, so there's an interesting book by a political science professor called Twitter and Tear Gas. And in that, what she does, she examines social movements. Now, I want to put a qualifier in here that, you know, we're still these institutions that are in the internet are still very young. So we don't know how they'll evolve. We don't know how deeply they'll adjust. But in Twitter and Tear Gas, what she points out is a comparison between the Women's March in Washington and the Civil Rights Movement in uh, March on Washington in the early 60s. And it took 10 years for the March on Washington to be organized. And in the process of doing that, all the members that were involved in it were developed deep, deep social ties. 
and they developed connections with political leaders and, and whatnot. And so after the March on Washington, the time before the Civil Rights Act got passed was very small because they were actually a galvanizing force, right? Whereas they gathered uh, more women in Washington in a shorter period of time than they did at the March on Washington, just through titters like a, you know, whatever, a flash dance or whatever, right? Flash mobs. <laughs> flash mob, yeah. <laughs> and so people all showed up and did all of that, but they didn't have those social ties. They didn't have that social capital built up. They didn't have that. And so a petition to a politician today, she, um, uh, you know, hypotheses is that if you sent a, a petition with 10,000 signatures, that you arranged over the internet, the politician looks at it and is like, meh, you know, like that. Whereas back in, you know, 40 years ago, if I sent a thousand uh, signature uh, thing, they'd say, holy crap, I got to like do something. And so something's a little weird with all of this. And I think you see it in other kinds of things that public choice helps us understand. So there's a problem of the vote motive. And part of the vote motive is that, uh, you know, if the costs of going to vote that day rise, like it's raining or something inconvenient happens, you'll not show up to vote because, you know, the, the benefit of your vote uh, uh, is very small and the costs are very high. And so why would you go and do it? Um, and so the only reason why we say we do it is because of expressive voting, because we want to show our team colors, which is, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a blue, I'm a red, you know, and I'm going to go there uh, and do that. And uh, with social media, we express our team colors all the time. And so because we express our team colors, we've already expressively voted, but we haven't actually gone and voted. And so what happens is social media might have a counterweight to getting voter turnout. Um, because I've already expressed my, my political views. I've already chosen my team. And the fact if I show up or I don't show up, uh, you know, is not going to, you know, be unless everyone doesn't show up. So it's always interesting. Go and, and uh, you know, people make fun of Tulloch um, with his extreme assumptions. But in his voting schmoting, uh, the PBS uh, little video that they did with him, at the very end, they ask him, well, what if everyone listened to you and no one showed up to vote? And Tulloch says, well, then I'd go and vote because his <laughs> vote would be the decisive vote, right? Yes. So as less people show up, the board, you know, and so it's this kind of interesting dilemma. And I think we need to be studying the impact of social media on the old institutions and what they might do to that and then what new institutions might evolve um, and to allow us to have more self-governing democratic societies. Yeah. And I wonder if a part of that is people don't, uh, not only do they do not go and vote, but they don't get engaged in their community and in, in finding productive solutions. So productive versus constructive versus destructive. Yeah. Uh, to go out and to be part of a march, you know, you get a high from it, then you go home and you do nothing further, as opposed to actually getting involved in a in a problem that's local to you, that's that's yeah. affecting. Yeah. You. The, I mean, one thing about the approach that we take when you ask about mental model. If co-production is going to be a key thing, it requires a lot of citizen participation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as anyone who lives in a community that has a homeowners association or whatever, you might find out that you really don't want to be all, you don't want to have a town hall meeting, right? That basketball game that's on TV on ESPN is a hell of a lot more interesting to you than the town hall meeting to discuss whether or not your neighbor is washing the side of their house enough or whatever. Um, and so, uh, 
you know, that may be a limitation to the issue. But then again, that that sort of suggests other kinds of problems with the way that we do things. Um, and maybe we should limit the amount of power that is trusted to authorities that are far removed from what our interests are. Uh, I have a question uh, aimed at really experts, people who practice policy analysis. And I'd like to start with uh, the story of Vincent Ostrom and when he was invited to advise on the Alaskan Constitution. And he essentially said, uh, I can't tell you what to put in your Constitution. We're going to, he, he handed it over to them, the people at the table, to, to put together the Constitution as they were going to be governed by it. Um, as experts, um, we need to be th policy analysts and people who work in that space. There's a tendency, perhaps, to think about ideal end states, uh, to drive towards, I've identified a problem, and then the, the menu is either uh, comes from uh, the side of the ledger that says privatize or the side, side of the ledger that says nationalize, rather than to take that one step back to disengage and to, th uh, to study the institutions, to do a comparative institutional analysis. Yeah. How do we, as experts, shift from that tendency to look at these end states and these dichotomous solutions to, to being a bit more removed and thinking about the self-governance possibilities uh, and some of these policy problems we study. So um, the Ostroms are extremely unique uh, academics, um, and they're very worthy of, I think, very detailed examination, even if you end up by disagreeing with them, because they actually have an extreme normative purpose to their enterprise, but then their enterprise is a positive analysis of how things work. I'll come back to that in a second. But it has, they want a science that is conducive to democratic society. And they really, that's their constraint on them. Um, and uh, they don't want a society that achieves ideal efficiency. What they want is a society that a deal uh, that uh, produces democratic self-governance. If 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 you understand what I mean by that, um, and so this issue of governing with versus governing over is a dominating idea in their system. Uh, so anytime that the institutions or the people who populate those institutions are given an authority to govern over, they want to put a check on that. And make sure, and so this is, you know, Vincent's turning back the problem to the people who were trying to design the Constitution. I, as an expert from afar, can't tell you what to do. You have to tell me what you want to achieve, and then we can talk together about maybe what are appropriate means to achieve those ends using the knowledge that we have from political science, or using, to put it broader, the knowledge we have from the science and art of association, which is what Vincent is trying to get at, this Tocquevillian idea. And you see that in Lynn's work uh, in Governing the Commons, is that what she's really doing in there is uh, giving priority to the cleverness and creativity of the people that find themselves in these social dilemmas. And she, as a theorist, is trying to capture that from her observations and then try to explain it. But it's not like she, her design principles is a wrong word, right? Because it's not that she designed the principles. They designed the principles, and she's gleaning from her meta-studies across countries and across time 
what is the general lesson that we can draw on this? And in fact, she has a a chart deep in the book where she goes through her comparative case studies and she has her, you know, nine principles and then she identifies, you know, which of the ones are working and which to explain what are sustainable and enduring, what are fragile and weak, and then what are reform measures that can go through. And and so, but again, it's it's driven from an observation of an already existing set of solutions rather than her designing the solutions. And I think that's an important point to keep in mind. Um, to just now, you know, I my background was in Sovietology, and then in development economics. Um, I always had a fascination with history of economic thought and methodology, so I always did work in that. But the defining work in my career early on was in in the the history and collapse and reconstruction of the societies in, in, in communism, mainly in Eastern Europe and in particular in the Soviet Union, and then uh, the problem of, of uh, lack of economic development in Latin America and in Africa. Um, and uh, we've had various projects over the years that I was the principal investigator on and then studied those things. And then we did uh, took those lessons and tried to apply them to disaster recovery because uh, you know, there's this great quote from Mill and about how countries rebound from uh, from disaster, and and that's a really a development puzzle. And Jack Herslifer had uh, wrote an article years ago about how development economics, disaster economics, is really just a branch of development economics. So that sort of was the linkage that we found. And so then we did this project on Katrina and some other ones about how communities. Uh, respond and rebuild themselves after natural disasters. But I'm 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 an economist in all of these things that dabble in other social sciences. But so I've also because of my history of economic thought thing, I've always worried or wondered about how economics uh, developed. And in the 20th century, I would argue that economics is a derived demand, um, and it's a derived demand from public administration. Um, so the way in which you envision public administration is going to dictate the way you think economists should be trained. And so in, in the old uni, uh, United Kingdom version, you know, of, of economics, uh, from Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill, um, economics was a philosopher pondering how society organizes itself. Um, and then the tools to the uh, the uh, statesman, um, as Smith points out in the in the Wealth of Nations, he even uses the term he calls them maxims, right? So they're like general rules, not particular policies. They're you know maxims that are to be followed, not particular like tax this at that to make sure that it you know exactly matches you know uh, the marginal benefit, the social marginal benefit, and the social marginal cost, and you know you can do all of that. That sort of began with the um, progressives in the United States and the Fabians uh, having some demand and success in the UK. And in not necessarily the Fabians, but social, uh, social problems movements. And, you know, there's problems of monopoly. There's problems of, of externalities. There's problems of inequality and poverty. And then how do you fix that? And so in the UK, this started with Marshall and then continued with Pugu. And the idea was is that you could 
find particular policies which would solve it and the expert would be trained to learn that and then impose that um, and then the United States of course that's what happens with the development of economics and it really takes off after the Great Depression um, and that economics is now supposed to be the science that's going to be the doctor to the social ills um, and that changes the way we teach economics so rather than economics now being born out of philosophical reflection on Adam Smith's common woolen coat or the pin factory or, uh, you know, the butcher, the baker, and the brewer, we're now confronted with a series, like a puzzle, right? Like, okay, so uh, GDP, national income accounts show that we're at less than a full employment level of output. How do we fix it, you know, through policy designs? And economists were trained to do that. If I can invoke Adam Smith one more time, uh, none of this is in the book as such, but it's like the mental model that frames a lot of it. But here's Adam Smith. Adam Smith argues that he has an observation. He's, been, he's studying economic history. He's worried about what kind of policy choices are economy destroyers, you know, the things that, like, why some countries never come back because they just screwed themselves up. So he argues that the economy killer is basically when you run deficits, accumulate public debt, and then debase your currency, all right? And if you do this unchecked, you'll destroy your economy. So this is his thesis about what might have happened in Rome or whatever these other places, right? Mm -hmm. So I would argue that from the time Adam Smith wrote, he calls it the juggling trick that all governments engage in, ancient as well as modern. And I would say from the time he wrote that, that's 1776, until we get to the 20th century, almost, not perfectly, but almost all economists thought, huh, we better constrain the juggler. We don't want that juggler to be unleashed. If you think about even famous things like Badgett's you know, law of rule or whatever, right? What's going to happen, it's, that's best practice for central banks, the lender of last resorts in a time of a crisis. But what does he say? We need to uh, only bail out the ones who are solvent and let the insolvent ones go away, right? And so that's a rule that he has because he doesn't want to unleash this beast to like, you know, keep going. And we had general rules that what was good for a uh, for an individual is also good for a, a kingdom, you know, these kind of ideas. Well, by the late 1930s, and then from that time until to this day, uh, it became a minority position in economics to worry about the budget, uh, right? You're going to use the budget to balance the economy. You're not going to. And so instead of constraining the jugglers, we now became the master jugglers for the, the government. And that was our job, to train and learn how to become master jugglers. Now, imagine what happens in a world where everyone is supposed to learn how to become a master juggler to the people who used to argue or now want to continue to arguing, we need to stop the juggling. They become a very lone wolf position. And that's not what's taught in the schools. That's not what's encouraged in the profession. Um, and, I mean, there are people who, of course, still hold the position that the government shouldn't be in control of discretionary authority over all the tools of macro and microeconomics. I mean, the, the key thing in macro was the tools of monetary and fiscal policy and in, in um, 
you know, in, in micro, they're the regulatory apparatus and, 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 and the taxing authorities, okay? Um, and so uh, this kind of approach that the Ostroms have, or what Buchanan has, is an approach which asks us to, as Buchanan puts it in his Nobel Prize address, the eco economists must cease acting as if they are giving advice to a benevolent despot. And so the idea is to move from the realm of policy to the realm of the rules of the game that will structure how policy decisions are made. And in Buchanan's work, this is where his conceptual unanimity idea comes in. And uh, because he wants to have it, the structural rules of the game that we would all agree uh, and therefore, if we agree, then the whatever comes out of the process is something that we would accept. So as, as those engaged in policy analysis, as, as people studying um, social orders, we really are in change, changing our engagement with it. We are, um, if we were to follow um, Eleanor Ostrom's um, approach to this, we are observing rules as they emerge, as emergent order um, in, in, in these spaces of collective action and common, commons problems the space where um, we're, we're engaging this classical liberal approach to public governance, as opposed to being a technician solving problems uh, to come up with maybe uh, a more efficient system or, or one that's more satisfying to some perceived end state. Yeah, I think that the problem with the efficiency claims uh, is not that we don't want to have uh, the most for the, the least amount of dollars that we put in. That That's not the claim. The issue is, is that uh, when you centralize the bureaucratic authority and you tell them that they have to uh, improve the delivery of X, Y, and Z service, they choose output targets. Um, these are not priced assets, so they don't have market prices to determine the values going in. They have other kinds of rules for determining that, right? And so they're not under the same scrutiny that a private enterprise would be under in terms of, you know, costs and, and revenue streams and costs of production kind of idea. Um, so they pick targets that they can measure. And so a classic example of this is, you know, the number of tickets that the police, uh, you know, uh, put out because they want public safety. So then they look at that and then, you know, you drive on the road and you see what happens at the end of the month, right? Because the police are trying to meet the output target. It's not that the police are bad uh, or sneaky or anything. They're responding very rationally to the incentives that have been set up for them. And uh, rather than creating an environment of public safety, they create an environment of the appearance of these output measures. Right. That that's what they're that's what they're trained to do. And if if what happens is if that's how you get rewarded or penalized by whether or not you meet the output targets, what you're going to do is you're going to try to, by natural incentives, game the system for you to have those output targets. Again, not any inferior inferior motives or anything like that. You're just responding to the incentives. And you also have a desire to pick as your output measures things that are easily can be measured. So issues like citizen satisfaction, it's not easily measured. I mean, surveys are unreliable, you know, all kinds of things like that. Uh, 
you know, uh, satisfaction is, is less obvious to see than grievances because people will show up to grieve. They don't, you know, exp express their anger. People don't necessarily show up to say, hey, things are going okay. You know, they, you know, they, they, they don't do that. And so we end up by measuring those things that we easily can measure. And then we take those as if those are the outputs. And I think what Lynn was trying to do and what Vincent was trying to do, even going back to the water, um, imagine of the, the water basin and whatnot in California was getting us to think about that idea. How do citizens creatively solve these problems, which technically from the expert point of view seem like intractable problems for individual citizens to solve. And they figure out clever ways to rig the system so that it actually ends up by being more accountable to them. And so we should look at that um, and, and learn from that. I do think that uh, going back to your question that you asked, I think, which is a very good one, because I don't think what this, our approach doesn't say the question of public governance is don't do it. <laughs> That's not, we're trying to find a positive program uh, in that. But I do think that we are governed by the idea that one, there's no panacea. So there's no one size fits all answer. And if there's no one-size-fits-all answer, what we need to do then is to make sure that we have these nodes of contestation and these demonstration effects of how, you know, people in one community solve their, you know, public dilemma or social dilemma and other places they solve theirs. And so this is why the principle of subsidiarity um, is so important going back to your federalism point. So I think, that, you know, if you look at Vincent's books, yeah, the first book is, you know, uh, the, 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 he has the, the, the political theory of a compound republic. That's the first. Then you have the meaning of American federalism. And then you have the meaning of democracy. And I think if you read those books in tandem to one another, you can see a kind of a vision that he's trying to lay out, which then Lynn tries to then take and operationalize by examining how real communities empower these principles even when they're not necessarily knowledgeable about them, uh, of them you know consciously they're just trying to solve their social dilemma you know they they have a they they're trying they have a fishery and they have fugitive resource which is the fish can go wherever the hell it wants to go how do i end up by figuring out a way to manage the fugitive resource or how do i handle a situation of a forestry and i want to you know and it's a common uh, pool resource. I mean, it's, it's it's not any one individual, you know, uh, tree farm, but instead it's, you know, a forest that the, that the community owns. How do they manage to keep it going over time and things like that? And these are all the kind of questions that Eleanor really, you know, went around the world looking at and, and irrigation systems in Nepal. You know, you always think about like some of these geographic areas well, geography throws up what might be really, really difficult problems. You know, it's one thing to have, you know, a, a, a stream of water when you're near waterways, but how about when you don't have waterways, you know? And then how do you find water to be able to do all these other things? Well, that's a huge public goods problem that you have to, but yet people figure out ways to do it, right? And so isn't that really fascinating to study that? And that's what she's doing. Um, and there's dysfunctions with that too. I mean, let's not be you know, uh, Pollyannish. Being, being in favor of self-governance does not imply being Pollyannish. Communities can get things wrong. 
<laughs> drastically so. Um, the question is, is whether or not the the damage that can be writ by an authority outside of that community telling that community how to do things, whether or not that could be even more damaging, that's one of the real questions. I mean, I think in, you know, Lynn um, wrote a book for the Swedish International Development Agency. It's called Aid, Sustainability, and Economic Development. And uh, it's very, it's, it was written a long time ago, but it says the same kind of things that Bill Easterly is trying to get at in a tyranny of experts. If you don't have the local community buy-in, and instead you have these experts from afar dictating how you're going to organize your society, well, you know, they don't do such a good job, and, 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 and we need to check that, and we need to check our hubris, and instead give priority to the people um, rather than to the experts. Some of the meta principles of a classical liberal engagement in public governance include uh, freedom of choice, freedom of association, and a skepticism over the social welfare function's ability to aggregate mm -hmm. preferences. Um, the, the possibilities of what you're suggesting really points to that we can allow for people who, who have heterogeneous values to live side by side, to, to authentically coexist in, in communities um, where they're able to um, solve their problems of, of living together. Um, I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about that, that this is, is really pretty um, pretty compelling, that instead of trying to figure out what system leaves the, um, the fewest number of people unsatisfied, you really are maximizing on <laughs> the most number of people being satisfied with how they're being governed. Yeah. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty compelling, but it's, it's a, again, it's a change in, in mental model that you can, you can achieve that. And especially today when you think about, um, uh, or I, I shouldn't even say today, but Vincent Ostrom in, um, in Democratic Orders gets into the role of belief and values at the, at the basis of institutions. And um, I think that's becoming more prominent in, in, in public policy as we try to figure out how, how we can ha have, have a space where people's values are being respected along these different dimensions and how they can solve these problems of living together. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a great summary. I do think that one of the main... Um, issues is that there is no single scale or values that we can all come to agree on. Um, and so we have to, in some sense, figure out rules that we can all interact under that are general and non-discriminatory. And then we can disagree. <laughs> um, I do recommend to everyone that I talk to about the Ostroms that they look at Barbara Allen's uh, you know, film uh, on the Ostroms. You can get it on YouTube. Just do Barbara Allen, The Life of the Ostroms or whatever. And the first interview uh, with Lynn is beautiful, I think. Um, she was an amazingly gregarious person. Um, and uh, she is asked about the one of the first things that they see, and she chuckles in this affectious laugh that she had, and she smiles, and she says... Uh, you know what we learned? They argue with each other, you know? And so she, it's not that they all just get together and hug and say, you know, it takes a village, so we're going to do it. There, there needs to be rules that allows you to make the village so that it can, it can do the job that it's supposed to do. And um, she really captures that, I think, and, and, and in a way that's very attractive intellectually to think about and, and go from there. But I, I think one of the things that's fascinating about both her and Vincent was 
also their deep appreciation of the m multiple forms within which institutional fixes can be can appear for us. So in what she calls institutional diversity. There's an amazing amount of institutional diversity out in the world that solves social dilemmas. And what we need to do is respect that, which means that we need to respect heterogeneous people. And so the idea, again, that there's one size fits all just rubs against her. That's why there's no panacea. But this all technically links back to the idea that there is no social welfare function, right? There's no single scalar of values that we can as agree as a society should be maximized. And so if you get rid of that idea, then how do you do public economics? And that's the real question. If there is no, and this goes back to Buchanan's 1949 paper on, you know, the pure theory of government expenditures. It, it uh, carries forward to his work criticizing Hientelic's, criticizing Arrow's uh, impossibility theorem um, and the way that they uh, tackle that. And then, of course, you know, Lynn. It, 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 if you think about it another way, um, what's fascinating about Lynn's work, this is more in Lynn than in Vincent, is that um, a lot of the kind of strategic interactions that she wants to explore in technical terms only could take place if we had a shared common knowledge and that allows us to play the game. What her innovation was in the field was to say, where the heck did they get that common knowledge from? How do they construct it? How do these communities construct that? And that's what she studied. Whereas the technical economics of it begins after you have it constructed already. So her innovation was to say, what are the tools by which these communities construct a common knowledge upon which they can in fact agree to like get on to these agreements with, or they can have expectations or whatever about this. And the inability to construct that common knowledge is one of the reasons why you get weaknesses in fragile institutions, if we can't. And so this goes back to what you were asking about before with regard to the um, trust that we have. This is why trust becomes such a big important part in the Ostrom's work. But the trust that we have in our main institutions in our society are perhaps now more questioned than they've been in a long time. And then the question is, how are we ever going to rebuild that trust so that we can live with one another and agree to disagree rather than team choose, right? So, you know, by team choosing and forcing people into a model of policy discussions as evil and stupid and then me, that's where things go south in these conversations. Instead, we have to recognize that in our policy discussions, we can have p individuals who are really motivated sincerely and intellectually disagree with us. And so what we need to do is figure out some space in politics that allows for turn-taking, right? And that's one of, this is Buchanan's idea, you know? And so this is what the Ostroms, this is how, you, this is why seeing like a citizen forces you to, I'll lose today, but, you know, I'll win tomorrow rather than I'll lose today and then I'll never win again. Well, hell with that. Then I'm going to, you know, hold out from the agreement kind of thing. And if we come to a position where we now more and more see ourselves as if I win, I win forever. And if I lose, I lose forever. Then you're never going to see any kind of brokering of agreements. Um, and we need to change that. And that can only be changed by a structural change in the rules of the game so that you build this in. And the way that people like myself or Paul and 
Vlad, my co-authors in this, and the way we build that from the Ostroms, it's contestation. Uh, no one wins all the time. <laughs> and so therefore, the more nodes of contestation you have, the more chances you have for turn-taking and examination and, 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 uh, and rethinking about things. Uh, yeah. So that gets into the meta rules, and, and as you say, if, if people are in a mindset of I, I win and I win forever, and then I change the rules to ensure that I remain in power, I mean, that's an alarming situation to be in, and it gets into the rules that under which we all agree to discuss the rules yeah. in which we're going to live under. And I think that's that's the level Eleanor Ostrom begins, uh, the constitutional level. Yeah. Um, yeah. She has the multiple levels, the yeah. operational level, the constitutional level. You know, Buchanan just has the two levels, right? The constitutional level and then the the, uh, the uh, play within the constitutional level. And so for, you know, people like me, you know, who, who are not as complicated as Lynn or ability to think like her on, on multi-level dimensions of chess i sort of devolved to the buchanan one all the time it's like rules and strategies within rules and that's how i approach post-communism that's how I, you know and so i'm always sort of looking at that but eleanor went took it a step further i think and and that's part of her innovation and why she's you know um you know why she won a nobel prize as well right so um it's fascinating stuff it should excite the imagination of young political economists i think um at least that's what we're hoping to do in the book is that you know people pick up on this and do the do even more detailed studies i mean we haven't talked about it but we have a whole chapter on the independent regulatory agencies which are all born out of the uh progressive era legislation um, they didn't always exist in the united states um, they emerged in that period um, and they're staffed uh, tremendously with economists throughout them. I mean, it's one of the main reasons going back to my derived demand point, uh, you know, earlier, uh, one of the, the significant employers of economist services. And what are they to do? They're, they're designed not to govern with, but in fact, to be immune from democratic pressures to govern over. That's the whole point, because they're trained experts. They're not to be subject to these issues. And they have huge impacts Again, no one wants to say expert knowledge is a bad thing. Uh, it's a funny, funny uh, issue. It, it's probably a bad example, but I'm people around here all know I'm like basketball obsessed. So I was just on my way in uh, from my home, and uh, I was listening to NBA radio. And one of the things about NBA radio is that they have a lot of former players, but they also have these like journalists. And some of the weird hours that are not like the main hours that people would be listening to NBA radio, they tend to have these journalists. And in my opinion, the quality of conversation that they talk about the game falls drastically. Um, and so whereas I want the expert, right? I want to hear like the guys who were in the finals or whatever and what they had to say and or the guys who coached to be even most of the time when it's talking about X's and O's, I'd rather even hear from like the great coaches and how they did things rather than, you know, some reporter who never picked up a ball in his life, but yet, you know, wants to get clickbait. And so he tries to tell you all the rumors about the NBA or whatever. And I'm like, you know, please, you know, want to turn the t to a bad choices at 10 o'clock in the morning coming in on the road. Let me tell you, because, you know, you turn on one thing and you got, you know, right wing radio, you, even you turn on NPR. It's not like quite like NPR at that time. And so you're constantly flicking around. You're like, what the hell's going on here? You know, um, but um, so I, I listen to NBA radio and ESPN. But it's like, you know, uh, I want expertise. You know, I, when I go to the doctor, 
I want an expert doctor to, you know, talk to. But I also love that I have second opinions and third opinions. And what I don't ever want is a monopoly expert. So if I went there and I had only one doctor and only one doctor to choose from, just like if I only had one economics professor and only one economics professor to choose from, life might be very different than if you have multiple ones and you can pick and choose and select from them. You give an example in, in the book on your chapter on independent regulatory authorities, uh, an alternative to our current model, which is the American um, Mechanical Engineers private certification as, right. a, as a possibility. I'm also wondering if we're not in a, an interesting time in, in the regulatory space. I, I, I note in the book you also uh, mention that there's a kind of drive to say, look, the agencies uh, don't necessarily have the expertise, or the regulatory agencies don't necessarily have the expertise. We should hand this back to Congress. But of course, they don't necessarily have the expertise to um, come up with regulations either. However, um, recently we've seen with more, um, with, with technology, again, giving us more granular data on what's in regulatory codes that the regulators themselves don't don't yeah. have, that yeah. this has caused a kind of moment of reflection in, in some regulatory spaces, and we're seeing rules emerge um, along the lines of regulatory budgeting in the yeah. states, uh, a one-in, two-out rule, or, or yeah. um, a, and I, to me that's a tacit admission that, look, we've, we've, we've added to the stock of regulations unchecked for decades, and we ourselves as regulators can't tell you what's, what's in the code. We need to do a better job here. And that's something that technology has, um, has enabled us to do. And I'm just wondering about that. Again, when getting to that point in your book about how technology changes yeah. things. I, I think a great, great point. Um, I'd like to make two points in response to that. I think classical liberals, especially in the pol uh, those sympathetic to classical liberalism that have been in the policy space since 1980, uh, I was talking about budget issues before, <laughs> but uh, let me, I'm, I'm going to quote Keynes favorably here. Uh, Keynes one time said, you cannot make a fat man skinny by tightening his belt. You have to make a fat man skinny and then his belt is looser. <laughs> okay? So we, we focus a lot on issues of scale. And I think we focus too much on those issues of scale, including when I was talking about the budgets before. Mm -hmm. Now, these are related, but I think the bigger damage is by expansion of scope. And what the reg data stuff that you allude to helps us do is understand the expanding scope of regulation in a more granular way than just adding up the number of laws or the number of pages in the Federal Registry or something. So it's actually very useful to see that we might be having regulations that actually, because of their expanding scope of control, end up by doing more damage in our economy than we might just see by adding one page. They have a magnitude effect, or vice versa. They might not be as you know damning. So this brings me to a point about the subsidiarity thing that I that I wanted to say, and it's kind of a an idea that gets glossed over a lot of times and. And, uh, but um, I was very influenced in my own thinking by a series of papers written by Barry Weingast uh, many years ago on what he calls market-preserving federalism. And in those uh, market-preserving federalism papers, he gives five conditions. Now, his case studies are as follows. They're the Dutch Republic, first modern economy, the United Kingdom, uh, the first sort of major uh, great miracle of economic growth, right? And then the United States. And then he 
you know, talks about the potential for China and Russia, uh, all along these lines of ideas. But he gives five conditions in theory. One of those conditions is, so a major condition is a hard budget constraint, right, that, that exists. But one of those conditions is that the level of economic regulation is at the lowest levels. And he, so you have to create a common market, but then you push all the regulations, not at the federal level, but push them all down to the states. And then go back to the polycentricism point, you now allow people to vote with their feet. And what you'll have is you'll have now, a lot of people will say this is a race to the bottom, blah, 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 and all these things like that. But what Weingast is pointing out is how that actually serves as a check because what you're having now is an experimentation. There's a wonderful book uh, by uh, the late uh, great uh, law and economics professor, Larry Ribstein, and Aaron O'Hearn. It's called uh, The Market for Laws. And it's uh, uh, through the United States uh, how this competition for various different legal arrangements leads to corporations re, you know, moving and people moving and all of that stuff and those combinations. And I think this is what the vision is. The vision is is that uh, people will trade off various different things in their decisions about where to have a business, where to live, where to raise their kids. Um, and there's going to be an array of public services that they're going to get for a price. And there's going to be costs and benefits associated with their activities. And so we want to make sure that, you know, they are the decision makers of that. And so I think this is the issue that you're uh, raising about, uh, but wine gas operationalizes it by pushing it down to the localist level. That, that um, perhaps leads to another question I had on the difference we have to keep in mind between political fragmentation and functional fragmentation. I remember first reading about the Ostroms many years ago and their, um, their patchwork of multiple overlapping governments and how how this was counter to the narrative in the 60s and 70s that we need a uh, UNIGOV. A, a UNIGOV map. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I remember reading at the time also um, New Jersey's Multiple Municipal Madness, which was written mm -hmm. by a, a state legislator who was just aggravated at the thought of all these little towns and, and it just looked like a mess. Yeah, yeah. And there's something almost we're wired to see a mess. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we want to see something that's orderly and, and easy to understand, not really appreciating. I think getting back to the James C. Scott book um, that you mentioned, seeing like a state. Yeah. We don't, we don't, the, the ecological system, the organic system seems to upset us. We want to put things in order. Um, yeah. um, functional fragmentation um, would, would speak to overlapping authorities and yeah. different entities doing different things with redundancy. Um, and yeah. anyway, how does, how does that? Well, you raise a great point because it appears that redundancy might be inefficient, but actually it turns out it's really valuable in certain things. It makes you resilient in, in various ways. Um, so the idea here is is uh, developed not only by the Ostroms, but by a lot of people who work on, on federalism ideas, and in particular Bruno Fry. Um, and it's the idea of function, functional overlapping competing jurisdictions, and that these functioning overlapping competing jurisdictions are, in fact, the source of a lot of uh, economic creativity and actually political creativity because you can have a variety of different political experiments in the way people are living. You and I are from uh, New Jersey. It's funny that you bring that up because uh, when uh, many years ago I read a, a book by a fellow New Jerseyan, Clint Bullock, um, which is called Grassroots Tyranny. And I had no idea this. I grew up in Clark Rawway, right on the border. He grew up in Linden and Linden was always full of corrupt you know, uh, politics and stuff. And he starts out by talking about the corrupt politics. 
And even though I was not politically aware or, you know, certainly not economically attuned when I was a kid growing up, I knew about the corruption. I was like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, like that's just that's just the way things are here, you know, like that. And you think about these various different things. So uh, I'm going to say something that might actually, you know, totally threaten my credibility with everyone. But I read a wonderful book many years ago. It's called Machine Made. And it's about Boss Tweed in New York City. And one of the things that's really fascinating is to compare the uh, whether or not these uh, corrupt regimes actually, uh, you know, might have done pretty good at times, you know, in terms of delivering local public goods and services. I'm not advocating, you know, that kind of patronage system or whatever going back to it. But it's not that it's completely a disaster. And one of the things, especially in developing economies, that you have to remember is that uh, you can't judge. This is like my colleague Pete Leeson likes to make this point a lot. You can't just assume that countries in that are developing can like just like through a wave of a magic wand have like a British parliamentary system and that it operates when, you know, they're middle income countries, they're going to behave like middle income countries have always behaved. When they're low income countries, they're going to behave like low income countries. And so the way Pete sums this up is he says, the rules tell us what's permissible. The constraints tell us what's possible. And I think that's always important to keep in mind when we think about like where we are in, in watching these messy experiments, because where we are today is not necessarily where we're going to be tomorrow. And so, but if you try to prevent what's going on today, you don't get tomorrow. And I think this matters for innovation in entrepreneurship. Um, you know, great tragedies happen as people start new ventures. But if everything is, is, is done with a precautionary principle, we're going to end up by wrapping everyone in bubble wrap and then nothing will happen. But on the other hand, we have tort law. So why not let tort law just do its job and then allow people to engage in permissionless innovation and go from there? It's better to ask for forgiveness than it is for permission. And, you know, and, and, and let's see where this takes us. And I think that's true for all of our kind of this is that it's that kind of spirit, because remember what Lynn is trying to unleash is both private and public entrepreneurship. Right. Public entrepreneurship is a key aspect of what it means to be in a self-governing democratic system. And so what does it take to unleash that public entrepreneurship? Um, you're very familiar with the work that we did on Katrina. Uh, Doris Vautier, who, you know, both both Virgil Store and Emily Chamley Wright really honed in on. She was superintendent of schools. Uh, she was a public entrepreneur. She's not a private entrepreneur. So she's not like. What Emily also did was to look at like the, um, I forget which one, I think it was Rite Aid, you know, Rite Aid opening up soon after in the neighborhood and therefore providing, you know, a normal life to people to be able to get their cosmetics and, you know, soap and these kind of things like that. Um, that's important. Or like what Steve Horowitz did on Walmart and, and, and the big box stores like Home Depot or whatever. Um, but <laughs> what they're talking about is a public official acting creatively within her means that's available to be able to solve social problems that were necessary to solve to be able to fix the problem. That's what Lynn's trying to talk about with these local communities and whatnot, and, and they're, they're public entrepreneurs. And so in our public governance book, we're also, because of what you were just talking about, these messy kind of processes of democracy are actually people figuring things out. And you have to... 
there's a fine line because you don't want to have it devolve into chaos, but you don't want to see the chaos for the order that's emerging either. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, had, I had a question I wanted to ask about the last chapter of your book, which is public and uh, it's corporate social responsibility topics, um, how the public and the private spaces, they overlap and they change their boundaries. Recently, um, my colleagues uh, Brian Knight and Trace Mitchell did a paper called Private Policies and Public Power. And it's about banks. Um, banks are given a, a government-granted charter. Yep. Some banks recently have decided to either stop providing services to private prisons or asking firearms manufacturers to stop selling certain products uh, or they, they won't uh, want to do business with them. And Brian Knight and, and, and Trace asked the question, is this an abuse of their government-granted privilege? Um, they are denying uh, services and potentially... Um, you know, the, the, that has effects for, for, these, uh, for these companies. Um, it, it's an interesting problem because these banks are doing so voluntarily. They're not being compelled to do this. It's, uh, is it a private value? Or are they operating in a public space? H how should we think through that? And what, what does that, your, your chapter on corporate social responsibility tell us about that? I mean, I get the sense that if it's mandatory, if it's mandatory corporate responsibility, we're in a different world than if it's voluntary. But here now we have a... Um, an entity that is is operating with a government granted charter, um, so they and offer some they offer some p potential ways to, to think about think this about problem and, and constrain them and, and constrain them yeah. and maybe penalize them or something. So like let me let me let me make two quick observations mm -hmm. and then I'll get to your question. One of them is because whenever people talk about corporate social responsibility, Milton Friedman's going to come up, right. and uh, the reality is is that the critics are wrong. <laughs> All right, uh, Friedman never said the only social responsibility of business is to maximize profits as such. Um, he is trying to make a point about how in the businessman trying to maximize his profits, they, they're, they end up by helping people more than if you ended up by trying to, um, you know, make good. So I just um, came across a clip of Humphrey Bogart uh, in the original uh, 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 Serena, I think is the name of the of the movie, where his brother, who is a uh, kind of uh, you know playboy and whatnot, is supposed to marry uh, Sabrina. Sabrina, it is right. It's, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, yeah, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, and um, and um, and the question is is whether or not he should or shouldn't or something. Oh, actually, he's not supposed to marry Sabrina. He's supposed to marry another. Sabrina's the chauffeur's daughter right so he's supposed to marry someone else but he actually loves sabrina and but he's supposed to marry. so his brother's trying to convince him that he should marry uh this other woman for polit for uh basically business reasons it's a relationship that they're gonna have and the brother starts like you know telling him like oh why are you doing this is just about money and all these things like that you know and then Humphrey Bogart responds, and he goes through and explains business isn't about money. You know, that's not, it's not a, you know, he says, well, what is it about power? He says, power is a dirty word, you know, not. And it's all about it, this creativity kind of idea that Humphrey Bogart has. I, I recommend just looking it up on the, on, the, on the YouTube clip. I think it's a really interesting kind of uh, clip. And that's kind of what Friedman's trying to get at. Now, you could agree or disagree. It's an empirical question. You know, what's going on with that? The second one is Friedman very much understood, just like Hayek, that social life is embedded within moral codes, uh, what, what Hayek called the rules of just conduct. But let me give you an example of this. Friedman goes to, Friedman was a famous intellectual, right? So he didn't need any university. I mean, he did when he was younger, but by the time 
he's an established intellectual and he's traveling around the world and giving advice to everyone. When I was in graduate school in the 80s, there was a t-shirt that used to float around with Milton Friedman's little head on it. And it had underneath of it the equation of exchange. And it said, with this equation, I have conquered. You know, So Milton Friedman's monetarism after the 68 presidential address of the AEA is pretty much you know, rules versus discretion. You know, you're going to follow you're, you're going to follow the monetarist rule and then the rational expectations revolution. This all is overturning sort of the Keynesian apparatus. And, you know, Friedman's going around the world and he writes, you know, capitalism and freedom. And then he writes free to choose. And everywhere he goes, I mean, free to choose sold millions of copies of books, right? Translated in all these different languages. So one of his famous lines, he's in China in 1979. I want to point out that he visited China. He visited any country that you know, would listen to him. He's not invited, by the way, by political leaders. He's usually invited by other intellectuals. And then since it's Milton Friedman in town, who's the most famous economist on the planet at the time, people want to hear him. And, and so they go see him. So he usually gets audiences to talk to the people. But that's not his primary purpose of being there. He, he never worked for any of these governments. He didn't anything like that. So he's in China and he's walking around. They say, Professor Friedman, Professor Friedman, what should we do? What should we do? It's 1979. China's in a lot of serious uh, you know, difficulty. And Friedman says, privatize, privatize, privatize. Okay. So that becomes this mantra. And then, of course, communism collapses later on, and everyone's like, shouldn't we follow the Friedman dictum? Privatize, privatize, privatize. So as the 2000s roll around, you know, the post-communism has its ups and downs and its bumps and bruises. And so people are like, Professor Friedman, Professor Friedman, would you change your dictum at all? And he said, oh, yeah, privatize, 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 provided there's a rule of law. What a difference that makes, right? Institutions. Yes. And so all of a sudden, Friedman, but I bet you that if you go back and even look at capitalism and freedom, certainly in free to choose, you're already going to hear him talking about the institutional embedments, the moral, you know, ideas. It's just that in, in, you know, in quick quip, you know, he's like privatize, 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 just like he would say, you know, uh, if you're going to, you know, if you double the money supply, you're going to double the price level. Right. So don't do that. You know that. And, and see, these are the kind of quips that you're forced into. So anyway, Friedman, I think, is much more nuanced than what critics, but that's independent of the point. There's a problem of social responsibility. Um, our colleague, yours and my colleague, uh, Russ Roberts, when the financial crisis hit, published a fantastic little booklet through Mercatus called Gambling with Other People's Money. If you privatize profits but socialize losses, don't be surprised you know, when people leverage their risk right um i i kid around with my undergraduate students <clears throat> i'm teaching them and i ask them a question i usually point to one of them i say hey we're going to go to vegas this weekend and i'm taking you all expenses paid and you're going to get to keep all the profits from you know what i'm going to stake you um uh, but i'll cover all your losses we'll have a grand time i said how are you going to spend your time? Are you going to be at the slot machines or are you going to be at the roulette wheel? They're like, man, I'm at the roulette wheel, you know, going like crazy, right? And I'm like, yeah, your name is Goldman Sachs. <laughs> you know, we just, I, I, it's really nice to meet you, Goldman. I, I greatly appreciate it. So what, this is, it's not like any of this stuff was like people woke up one day and decided to get stupid. It's like they face systematic incentives, goes all the way back to Continental, Illinois. And it, it, it you know, it, it had, uh, ramifications. If you think about that, we have a lot of breach of our public trust precisely because of this idea, and we need to fix that. And so that includes even like things like in public education and everything else. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of signs say protect our public education. And, you know, uh, part of my answer to that is yes. 
you know, protect our public education, make sure that these are zones in which, you know, ideas get discussed and it's not politicized. Uh, we end up by having, you know, freedom of inquiry and freedom of scientific discovery. And what we need is contestation. So every time that I say something in class, the students should be free to like, you know, come up and, and, and challenge it. And my colleagues in other departments or in the university should be able to challenge it. And we should have an open conversation and yet still sit down and like break bread with one another. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what the university is supposed to be about. And when we don't have that kind of environment in the university, we're breaking the public trust. And part of that is, is, is you know, when we tell kids, you know, uh, I mean, understand it is their decision, right? And they do make a lot of these decisions and maybe their parents and other people haven't advised them. But the reality is the universities are culpable as well in that we go to university. I, I'm, I, I imagine since you and I are both from New Jersey, we had similar kind of views of our parents who are New Jersey, you know, yeah. uh, people. Yeah. Uh, you don't go to college to just think big thoughts. You go to college because it's going to give you a career, and that career is going to allow you to have a bite at the American dream. Right. That's the only reason I go to college, because otherwise, you know, there's a job waiting for you in one of the factories. <laughs> there's a job doing here, but you go to, you know, go to school in order to be able to have a career, and so that's what you should be judged by. Um, and uh, so that's the American dream. My parents didn't go to college, and so, uh, you know, to them, all their kids went to college. That was a really big thing, because this is the way you have the American dream. You know, the idea that, that you go $200,000 in debt to major in something that doesn't have a rate of return, mm -hmm. um, that didn't used to happen. It happens right. now. Is that, at some level, a breach of the public trust? Mm -hmm. I think it is, and I think we should be thinking seriously about ways to address it. I don't think the way to address it is to, you know, wipe out all the debts or debt. anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, but I do think that it's a serious issue that public educators and public administrators should be thinking about like what have we done here you know what are we offering that has that how do i adjust to this changing era and i think that parents and kids and their advisors back at school should be giving them information about what the the possibilities are in their for their career options you know and so uh now you know it's weird right because uh, Steve Jobs, you know, was studying calligraphy, you know, uh, uh, right, is that the way you say the word, right? The, like calligraphy? the calligraphy, mm -hmm. yeah, up at Reed. You know, he never finished college, yeah. but that's what he studied. And later on, he said that was his main thing that when he figured out Apple fonts. Because if you remember in the old days when you and I first, yes. you know, were doing these things, it was like that dot matrix yes. printer and everything like that. The best you could do is Times New Roman. Mm -hmm. And he came up with all the different fonts and everything. It was because of that class. So he did combinatorial thinking. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have art history majors, you know, Michael Lewis, who then go on to Wall Street and then write Liar's Poker and then become, you know, his famous intellectual. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have those kind of majors or whatever that don't have them. But I think people should go into this. If I'm going to go $200,000 in debt, you know, I should have like, it, like that used to make sense if I was going to be a doctor mm -hmm. or a lawyer, right? Because then I could go into debt and then I could do that. But if I'm going to be an elementary school, like I wanted to be a high school basketball coach when I went to college. That was the only thing I wanted to be. That was my dream. And if I would have had to go $200,000 in debt to become a high school basketball coach, I would have been happy being a high school basketball coach, but I'd still be, you know, completely behind the eight ball in that. And so I think there's a breach of public trust. 
that's interesting, and it, it takes it takes the policy perspective down to the fundamental question. I'm thinking of uh, I think it was Andrew Coulson's book, Market Education. Why do we seek an education? What are we doing in this space? And um, you know what, what we were just speaking to um, points to the variety that's possible in the education yeah. space, and we don't have that right now. We have much more of a homogeneous idea, set of ideas, and, and yeah. maybe approaches to education at all levels. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to tell you, it was an interesting conversation with my dad when I told him that not only was I going to switch out of you know what I was majoring in, which was practical, to s economics and philosophy, and my father looked at me like. What's the damage that happened to you? <laughs> and and you know I I I love actually this is a a weird story but it's a true story. My my first year in college, my grandfather on my mom's side, who I was very close with, um, he got congestive heart failure. He was in his late 80s and he passed away. And I had a rough first semester in college because I wasn't really prepared for college. I should have probably went to prep school, but I went off to college to play basketball and I got hurt at the very, very beginning of the season, and a, and a season-ending injury. Uh, um, so, um, uh, And then my grandfather, right on the heels of that, went into the hospital with congestive heart failure. And so I came back home uh, in my cast and everything and uh, uh, went and saw my grandfather. And my grandfather grabbed onto my hand and told me, please make sure you complete college, okay? And because there wasn't uh, any, uh, you know, my, my brother hadn't completed college and uh, the, my grandfather, of course, is an old day. So he, he was worried about the males. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so he graciously, please, please, Peter, promise me you'll finish college. My brother also went to college to play basketball and got hurt. And, you know, things happened from that. And that's one of the reasons why he didn't graduate. Um, and um, so now I graduate college. It took me five years to get out of four years school. Take and you know basically a half a year off then I go to graduate school so now I'm in graduate school so now it's probably about 10 years after my grandfather made and made me make that promise to him and I'm home for Thanksgiving it's my last year in graduate school and my Nana who's in her 90s or you know late 80s 90s at that time she grabs me she says Peter can I talk to you <laughs> my family whenever it was serious they would call me Peter. It was like, hey, so, so, very serious, Peter Joseph. But uh, Petey sometimes was the, the term of endearment. But Peter, Peter. So my grand Nana says, Peter, I need to talk to you. So we go away from the family. We go over in this little room. She grabs a hold of my hand, and she says, Peter. She was the only other person in the, in the hospital bed with my grandfather. She goes, she goes, Peter, I know that Pop-Pop told you to stay in school. Not forever. <laughs> you have to get out. You can't be a professional student. And I said, don't worry about it, Nana. I'm almost done. I'm going to have a job. She goes, seriously. <laughs> I think my grandmother thought I was still, like, taking classes yeah. back at, you know, my college and yeah. didn't see that I was going on. But, you know, she was very nervous that I was going to become, like, a near wall because, I'm, you know, a, a, a professional student. So I think that, you know, what we care about, what we invest in, we all, things like that, we should make, you know, I, I'm all for people doing a variety of different things and pursuing those careers. And I actually think that the we're in a trillion-dollar economy, mm -hmm. and there's a amazing opportunities for people. They just have to figure out how to monetize it. And so you can unleash the entrepreneurial spirit in all of these majors that people say, oh, you can't major in that and do it. But what you can't do is have the safe bet in those. You have to do. So as long as we cultivate that in our young mm -hmm. students, whatever, which again is part of our 
uh, moral responsibility as educators. And so I, you know, going back, I haven't read the the, the piece by uh, uh, Knight and, and whatnot, um, but I want to now because I do think that, you know, there's a very, very serious problem that we're confronted in which a lot of the very things that we complain about, this is not so much the Ostrom, but Buchanan and Virginia School of Political Economy, which is rent-seeking, is that we become a rent-seeking society. So when we become a rent-seeking society, these mixed or splits between the public and the private, they've in fact merged. Mm -hmm. And we're a mercantilist. And to go back to Adam Smith, we're in a mercantilist economy. And as classical liberals, we're critics of that mercantilist system. And so we're not critics of enterprise. That's not what we're against. We're not critics of markets, but we are critics of business that use the government to tilt the rules in their favor at the expense of others. And we shouldn't be surprised that this creates the kind of dysfunctions that a lot of other people find frustrating, from macroeconomic instability to microeconomic inefficiencies to social problems like inequality and lack of mobility. We've gummed up labor markets. We've gummed up financial markets all because of interest group politics. And so if we can just disabuse ourselves of these things and be very much engaged in the debate, um, I know we're probably running out of time, so I just want to make one quick thing. I've always been amazed at the following thing. So in 2000, I think the you can correct me, but it's either 2013 or 2014, when uh, Thomas Piketty's book, Capital, uh, took off like, a, like a lightning in a bottle, right? It's just amazing. That same year, Luigi Zangales' book, A People's Capitalism, or A Capitalism for the People, was published, in which, in the Capitalism for the People, he puts the blame on the dysfunctions on the increasing embeddedment of our private sector by our public sector institutions. And Piketty blames the dysfunction of capitalism on the nature of the operation of markets. And Zangales' book didn't get any play. And I've always been frustrated by that. Yeah. So if you think about it, you have the Zangales book, you have more recently uh, Michael Munger's book, or you have more, even more recently uh, Ran uh, Randy Holcomb's book on political capitalism. Mm -hmm. Randy Holcomb had an earlier monograph that Mercatus uh, you know, did that where he lays out the arguments that eventually become the political capitalism book. Um, and to me, I think you know, we need to be really thinking about those arguments as they then relate to the kind of questions, because that would speak to the younger generation of people about the nature of the relationship between the public and the private and the community, um, which I think is the other element of that, which is, you know, there's this new book out by Raghu Rajan uh, called The Third Pillar, and it's about state markets and community. Mm -hmm. Well, go back and look at our Katrina project and the stuff that we did. We've always been interested in, in community. That was like a big part of what we did. And But again, we were outliers compared to others at that time. But now people are recognizing it. So it's time for us to now say, hey, we've been thinking about this as well and make sure that young economists, political scientists, and policy scientists are all recognizing that we see this interaction effect between the community, the polity, and the economy, and not that you can't treat them in isolation of one another. It's that entangled political economy line. Yeah, as Dick um, Wagner, Dick, you know, right. likes to, to mention, and, you know, um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, all of us are making various different efforts at these yeah. things. Um, some of them are uh, you know, have been more successful than others. But I think that, you know, Dick Wagner's stuff is so profound and uh, deserves a very wide readership. 
precisely because of these issues and the fact that his framework can be taken to these concerns that people have today about basically labor markets not functioning properly, uh, that uh, capital markets not functioning properly. Um, and Dick's work tells us in some sense why. And then we have to think creatively about ways in which, you know, rearrange the rules. Um, but, you know, um, you asked about this mindset. Again, this is not necessarily in the book, but when when uh, the Britain was going through its reforms and uh, Steve Littlechild uh, was one of the economists in charge of regulation, he wrote a little pamphlet. It's called Change the Rules. Okay. And there's a kind of a... Uh, you know, there's something empty about that, but there's also something profound about it. We need to change these rules so that the environment in which these public decisions are being made are ones that we can all sign on to even when we disagree. I don't know how much time we have left, but I have I have one more thing I'd yeah. like to talk about. Um, the phrase monstrous moral hybrids uh, popped into mind while reading, while reading your book, uh, where we have... Um, uh, as you know from Jane, Jane Jacobs' Systems of Survival, uh, in which she lays out this phenomenon of where you have a private entity that adopts features of, of a government entity yeah. or a government entity adopting features of a private, and how that can go terribly wrong. Yeah. And some of that, I, I think, might, you might find examples of it in um, running the government like a business, just make it more efficient. And there could be even worse examples from there about how you get this, this pathological system. Um, or where we see something that looks polycentric but really isn't because it's missing some of the features of polycentricity, yeah. um, freedom of entry and exit or clear rules or wh what, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering, how did that, did that com come to mind in, 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 in when you were writing the book, this idea of monstrous moral hybrids? Yeah, first of all, I, I love the fact that you brought up Jane Jacobs' Systems of Survival. I, I, again, I would it's a wonderful book. I wrote a review of it uh, w many, many years ago when – I was, uh, you know, just a brand new professor, assistant professor, and uh, I love that book. Um, so it's interesting you say this because, you know, obviously I had all this theoretical training with Buchanan and Tulloch and, and then in Austrian economics with Don Lavoie and Karen Vaughan and others. And um, uh, Dick Wagner wasn't a professor at Mason at the time. He came the year that I, I left um, uh, here. But, um, uh, but I was a Sovietologist. And so I got it, you know, very much involved in that. And I read a paper very early on by Katharina Pister, and it's called Coping with Hydra, which is exactly what you were just talking about. And she details this kind of mixed ownership form and then what happens in those mixed ownership forms. Because we got to remember, so, you know, at some level, all of these conversations do turn on basic economics. So at some level, you know, you asked me to start about the mental model, and I went off on contestation and, and you know, whatnot. Um, but I think the other thing to keep in mind and, and also to remember what the Ostroms did, because their challenging thing was to bring what they called the political economy perspective into political science uh, and pol public administration. So we can't forget the economics here. And so the economics boils down to a very, very simple thing, which is you have to have incentive-compatible public policies. If for your public policies you're relying on mythical beasts to be able to achieve the outcomes you desire, you're going to be frustrated. And then for people like yourself, 
who are engaged in the discourse and hope to change the policy discourse, you also have to remember that you have to design uh, incentive-compatible strategies to change. If you expect politicians to fall on a sword in order to get the reforms through, that's just not the nature of the beast. <laughs> They're just not going to do that. All right. So it has to be things that. So this is why you end up by with weird things like grandfather clauses and you know other kinds of issues. Somehow you can blame it. That's one of the reasons why, you know, you sometimes want to have the the more and more you know polycentricism is because it's a demonstration effect. If I'm in if I'm in West Virginia and my businesses are leaving West Virginia to go to Virginia because I have tax and regulations that are prohibitive for businesses, I can turn to my local community and say, I agree with you that we should have this, but you know, look what's happening to us. So we need to compete, you know, kind of thing and blame it on somebody else. It gives the it, it, you know, so you have to find incentive compatible strategies in order to get the implementations. Now, after that, all these other complicated things are built on top of it. You know, one of the real fascinating things about economics is that I would argue, not every economist would argue this, but I would argue that economics has the same ontological status as physics, but we have a different epistemological procedures by which we find out our, our things. But the reality is, is that the laws in economics are more like the laws of the tides, uh, you know, and so what I can do is I can tell you the general uh, tendencies and directions, what the gravitational pull would be of, you know, when the earth rotates and what's going to happen to the tides that month. What I can't tell you is the particular behavior in any one harbor because I don't know all the other offsetting factors. And that's also true of physicists predicting where a feather, if I dropped it from the top of this building, where it would exactly land on the ground. In a vacuum, I could. But out here, I couldn't because wind and all kinds of other things would affect. The general law, law still applies, but the particular manifestation has all these other intervening factors. That's what we do in economics, and that's where we're at in economics. So we have to always have these economic you know, laws, um, these gravitational pulls in economics. That's the incentive compatibility issues. But there's always these intervening forces that make it so – and so rather than throw our hands up and say, you know – man, this, this is terrible. What we need to do is embrace that complexity. And this is one of the issues that Lynn really stresses. She says, when I'm confronted with complexity, I don't push it aside for analytical tractability. I have to embrace it. And that's one of the messages, I think, that comes out. And when we're talking about public governance, it's messy, right? And it, it, you know, it's sausage being made all the time. But the questions that need to be asked are still always there. What goods are going to be produced? How are they going to produ be produced? How are you going to pay for them? And, who, and, and who's going to get them? Right? Those are all kinds of questions. No matter where you're at, we're going to And those are in the public space. In the market, we have clear-cut examples of this because we have private property rights, we have prices, we have profit and loss. And you have a residual claimant that's in charge of the decision. So if they don't make the right decision and consumers aren't satisfied, resources go away from them, and then the resources get ownership gets shifted over to them. But in the public sector, hmm, yeah. those mechanisms are not as tight. And so how do you make those decisions? How do you come up with those? And that's where we're at in all these conversations. And that's what we're trying to get at in the book. And so, again, like I, I said, I hope that we pick up on the research tasks that are involved in public governance and encourage, you know, young PhDs and whatnot and new professors to work and try to go from that you know, uh, to use Lynn's uh, idea, down to that operational level, <laughs> right? So from right, not just the rule level and the, and the strategy levels, but then 
into that operational level. And I hope that we the book does that and is a catalyst for that. I think it does. And I think it's a great reminder to embrace the complexity, which is to also be, as Eleanor Ostrom, a lifelong learner, to have curiosity about it. Um, I, 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 in, in the book, it says at one point, uh, it's not enough just to propose and this program and have nothing to say after that. Um, and there's a kind of way of approaching our work as, as scholars that en embraces complexity and also puts us in a position of, of curiosity, learning, and, and indeed uh, really engaging, en engaging in the space we're studying. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.